We have been going through the book of Romans. Man, I don't even, I feel like I don't even need to, to preach after those songs. Um, I could do a whole sermon on thy mercy, my God, is the theme of my song. And actually I have. Um, because years ago, Caveman's Call, you remember this band, Caveman's Call? I don't know if you guys are old enough to remember them. Um, they recorded that song after we'd put it on one of the Indelible Grace records. They recorded it. And they actually, I actually got to go out with them on tour, and after that song, I would come out and preach a little sermon, which was completely awkward, and nobody there, like, cared. Um, but I did it uh, for a few times, and, um, I, you know, you, you literally could preach a four-point sermon from the four points of that text. I, I love that one. Even the lines after what Mikey read, um, which wonders to feel its hardness to part. Like, have you ever, like, been amazed that you saw some softening in your heart that you can't explain any other way than that you've seen the Lord's goodness? And that's the next line, right? Dissolved by that goodness. Um, it's amazing. That guy, John Stocker, only wrote a couple hymns that we know of. It's a pretty good hymn, but he only wrote two or three and just submitted them to this magazine. And we really don't know hardly anything about him. Man, I wish we had more hymns. Um, by him, because that one is really one of my absolute favorite texts. So, welcome back from spring break. We've been going through the book of Romans. We're actually going to camp out in chapter 8 for a few weeks, because there's some such good stuff in there. Um, I posted a little quote on the group me, kind of like if you want a summary of Romans 8, even though we're only going to dip into it tonight, really the, the heart of Romans 8. Remember, Romans 7 ends with Paul saying, what I don't want to do, that's what I do. And what I want to do, that's what I don't do. Oh, who will deliver me from this body of death? And then he says, thanks be to God, in Christ Jesus, right? So he ends with this statement about the schizophrenia that Christians feel. They feel like, I know I love Jesus in the deepest part of me, but it seems sometimes like that's not true at all, the way I live, if I'm really honest. Now, unfortunately, a lot of people in Christian churches don't, they just don't have the freedom to be as honest as Paul in Romans 7. They, they, they feel like they have to pretend that that's not really true. As a matter of fact, there are a lot of Christians that say that what Paul says in Romans 7 can't possibly be Paul speaking as a Christian. It has to be him looking back to before he was a Christian. And there's various reasons which I talked about two weeks ago about why I don't think that that interpretation really makes sense, but I can understand why people would be drawn to that because it just seems like Christians are supposed to be better. They're supposed to be different. And yet Paul seems to speak like he's just as crazy as, <laughs> as, as everybody and, and what's going on. So that's where we were with Romans 7. That's the end of Romans 7. Now here in Romans 8, I think what Paul says here, this is the heart of what Romans 8 is about. There is real hope in spite of what we feel. And that's why it was really helpful for what, what Mikey said there. Um, when our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts. One of the hardest things is to not be ruled by your feelings. Right? There's real hope in spite of what we feel because, this is Romans 8, there is now, that's an important word, now no condemnation. Not something that you might eventually achieve if you work hard and you keep your nose clean. No, there is no condemnation now. 
and we are alive by the power of the Spirit who dwells in all God's true children. And to top it all off, our future is secure in the love of God. Like Romans 8 is one of the most encouraging passages there is. But here's what you need to understand. It's not like you go through Romans 7 and then you graduate into Romans 8. The key to understanding the Christian life is to know that Romans 7 and Romans 8 are true at the same time. And the reason we know that, as we're going to see here in a minute, is he uses the present tense in Romans 7. I don't do now what I want to do. And he says here, there is now no condemnation. Verse 2, for the law of the spirit of life has set you free now. Right? So they're both present tense experiences right now. It's not like you go through Romans 7, but eventually when you kind of get the hang of it, you get this Christian thing down, you get better at reading your Bible and praying and, you know, not drinking on the weekends or whatever it is that you're, you know, concerned that you do that you shouldn't do. And there's lots of things, of course. But Romans 7, Romans 8 are true at the same time. And that is so important. Um, so let me read the text here. Um, the, the other thing that's interesting is Paul here as we're going to see at the very end of this passage, is telling us this stuff not just for the heck of it, but so that we would fight against sin. It's important that you understand that if you are a Christian, there is now no condemnation. But God is not just wanting you to know that. He wants you to use that. He doesn't just want you to know that. He wants you to use that to fight against sin. He wants to gather a body of believers who will live out the full reality of holiness and conformity to Christ, a group of people who will provide tangible evidence that Christ is real and powerful, a countercultural community, if you will. Rebecca McLaughlin, brilliant um, apologist, uh, has a book on 10 things every teen should know, but I thought this was a really good quote. Um, she says, following Jesus doesn't only give us a way to live our best life forever after we die. It also, in some unexpected ways, means living our best life together now. I think one of the great lies the devil has foisted upon the Christian church is that the primary significance of Christianity is for what happens after you die. That's not true. And that's what Romans 8 is about. So let's, uh, let's read this. I'm going to read, follow along. Romans chapter 8. We're going to read, starting at verse 1. There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. For the law of the spirit of life has set you free in Christ Jesus from the law of sin and death. For God has done what the law, weakened by the flesh, could not do. By sending his own son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and for sin, he condemned sin in the flesh in order that the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us, who walk not according to the flesh, but according to the spirit. For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the spirit set their minds on the things of the spirit. For to set the mind on the flesh is death, but to set the mind on the spirit is life and peace. For the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. Those who are in the flesh cannot please God. You, however, 
are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in you, anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ does not belong to him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the spirit is life because of righteousness. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you. So then, brethren, we are debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the spirit of God are sons of God. We pray. Lord, we do thank you for this passage of scripture. Thank you for the circumstances that led the Apostle Paul to write this. Thank you for preserving this, your holy and errant word, for us. Speak to us now, even through the foolishness of preaching. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. So, there's real hope. There's real hope. There is now no condemnation. We have the spirit that dwells in us, which is completely different than when before we were converted. And as Romans 8 goes on to say, there is real security in the love of God. And as important as those things are to know, what Paul really wants us to understand is how to use those to fight against sin, right? For that's what he says in verse 4. That, that God did all this, sending his son, so that, verse 4, the righteous requirement of the law might be fulfilled in us. That doesn't mean just so that we will be seen as righteous because of what Jesus did, living and dying in our place. That's true, and that is what's called justification. But what he's saying here in verse 4 is that the righteous requirements of the law, which is holy and good, would begin to be manifest in us. Loving the Lord our God with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. Loving our neighbors as ourselves. This is the kind of community that God wants to make. And at various times throughout the history of the Bible, he's given different amounts of specificity to what that looks like. Right? If you think about the Ten Commandments, Jesus said that all the laws and the commandments hang on these two laws. Love God and love your neighbor, right? Right? That means that the Ten Commandments are just another way of saying love God and love your neighbor. Or you could think of it this way. God brings Israel out of bondage in Egypt, and then he says, here are ten ways for you to stay free and to be the kind of countercultural community to demonstrate to the watching world there is another way to live. A, a, a world in which you honor, where your word is honored where sex is honored, where worship is pure and holy, right? All these sorts of things, where life, people made in the image of God are honored. All those sorts of things, right? So this is what God wants, not just to, to make us beautiful in his sight, but to actually make us beautiful all the way down. That's what he's about. And really, there are kind of two principal motivations Paul gives in this section of Romans 8 for why we should care and why we should fight against sin. Because I think by the time you get to be in college, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably become discouraged. You probably have been living in Romans 7 for a long time. 
I would say, at least the way I understand it, you've been living in Romans 7 ever since you were a Christian, and you will be continuing to live in Romans 7 until Jesus comes back or you die and go be with him. Okay? And, and, after, and, and, and for a while, sometimes it feels like, oh, really? Again? Again I have to go to God and ask forgiveness and embrace the righteousness and the, that he gives me and the forgiveness? Again, I have to do this again? The fact is we hate being needy. Um, which is actually one of the deepest sins that's so hard to root out of our hearts, right? We would rather like figure out how to get this thing down. I remember one time a student years and years ago um, came to me. He was very serious about this. He was a pretty young Christian, pretty zealous guy. And he said, Kevin, I want to meet with you and talk about how I can overcome lust. I'm like, okay, I meet and talk with people about that all the time. That'd be great. Uh, But then he goes on, he goes, because, you know, I feel like if I can just overcome that, then I'm really there because I, realize, I feel like I've gotten it all, everything else together. It was like the rich young ruler, you know, like all of these I've done from my youth. I'm like, really? You know, it's like Ben Franklin, right? Maybe he sets out this little list of all the things he's going to work hard to do. And then he gets to pride and he realizes that all the progress he made just fueled pride. And there's no way for him to actually pursue humility and pursue holiness uh, or character development on his own. Right. Never mind the fact that he was, a, you know sexually promiscuous, you know, lech, but that's a whole other thing. Um, you don't hear that part in the history books, but there's a lot, well, no, it's true, there, yeah. There, there, there's documents, you know, behind that. Anyway, um, so, you know, here, here's the thing, like, Romans 8 is encouraging us to fight against sin in spite of how hopeless it, it feels because there is real hope. There's real hope. And here's the thing. It's, it's a bit counterintuitive. So I remember my freshman year in college going to a church up in Boston. I went to college at Berkeley College of Music up there. I remember going and visiting a church, deciding, yeah, this, I like this church. They preach from the Bible and whatnot. It seemed, seemed like welcoming people. Um, you couldn't be nearly as picky about churches up in Boston in those days as you can be here in Nashville. All right. So it's like, these people are actually Christians. Great. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to land here and I'm glad to have found them. Um, but anyway, I remember, you know, that it was really that my freshman year that the preacher preached a sermon that really undid my belief that if you were truly a Christian, that you would persevere to the end, that you wouldn't lose your salvation. Now, that might seem like just kind of a minor theological issue, um, but I will tell you that for years, it really undercut my motivation to really strive hard after God. Um, and, and what's interesting is there have been whole, whole swaths of the Christian church, namely the Roman Catholic Church, which says that assurance of salvation is a Protestant heresy. Not slamming the Roman Catholic Church, just a significant theological difference they have. That's part of the Council of Trent. That's part of what the Reformation was all about. They believe and so John Wesley taught this same thing. So a lot of y'all come from churches that were, you know, the legacy of John Wesley, great guy in so many ways. But both of these groups believed that if you didn't have a little healthy fear, that you really, really wouldn't fight against sin. That it was help that the more secure you were in God's love, the more lazy you would become. And, and I understand why you might think that. Because chances are, you've kind of used that sort of motivation on your own heart to try and do things you don't really want to do, right? But I'll just tell you, a friend of mine likes to say, obedience is not the Brussels sprouts of the Christian life. Like you were made, you were made 
to love the Lord your God with all your heart. Your true human dignity is restored when you live the way God said, this is how I made you to live. And what Paul is saying is the more secure you are in God's love, the more it energizes you to live hard for God. So he starts out, remember he was there, he's talking Romans 7, we all feel crazy, but I really want you to keep fighting against sin. So what does he tell him? There's now no, non, no condemnation. I just don't know if very many of us, if you said, what's the one sermon you need to preach to help people find energy to battle against sin and unbelief? Tell them that there's now no condemnation. And, and, and a lot of people will be like, well, that doesn't seem like the right message to preach because that's going to remove all the fear. But that's the thing. The Christian life is about the perfect love that casts out fear. And while fear may be a temporary motivation, it's not really changing your heart. And that's the heart of what Paul's saying here. What the law couldn't do, God had to do in the gospel. What couldn't the law do? I mean, the law could threaten you and make you afraid, say, if you don't, if you don't live the way God wants you to, then you're going straight to hell. The law says that. It can frighten you, but... I don't think there's very many people that have significantly changed their lives because of that. They might have changed for a little while, but after a while you're like, yeah, well, you know, I'm still here. I'm still doing okay. Nobody, I didn't get a big thunderbolt out of the, out of the sky. So I don't know. Maybe I, I, it's okay for me to just kind of live the way I want to live. Right? That kind of motivation doesn't last for long. Uh, and there is the whole reality that your conscience can be seared and you don't even actually care about those sorts of things or those kind of threats. The law, though can't change your heart that suspects that God is not good. The gospel is the only thing that can do that because the gospel is a demonstration of the goodness of God. Remember chapter five, while we were yet sinners, Christ demonstrated, sorry, God demonstrated his love for us in this, that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. So that demonstration of God's love can actually melt our hearts, right? That's the line in thy mercy, my God. Dissolved by thy goodness, I fall to the ground and weep at the joy or with the joy and wonder I found. Like just this astonishing glory that Jesus would die for one like me, that's the only thing that has the power to actually change your heart. So it may seem counterintuitive, but the reason it seems counterintuitive is because we still are so much sort of bogged down with this way of relating to God or thinking that the way we relate to God is that he's pleased when we do the right things and he's really kind of disappointed, upset when we do the wrong things. We don't really get it that no matter how we live, if we're in Christ, there is now no condemnation. He doesn't say less condemnation. He says no condemnation. And he says it's now no condemnation. That's an emphatic statement, right? He's not talking about a temporary situation. And it's wrong, even though I know there are some Christians that teach us, it's wrong to think that you go in and out of God's favor depending on whether you're prayed up. I hate that phrase. Um, or, or whether you're living right. And if you have a bad day, then God is like disappointed and his feelings about you change. 
No, there is now, therefore, no condemnation, and it has nothing to do with how you've lived. Why is that, that there's no condemnation? Because we're in Christ Jesus. And as Paul has been saying, to be in Christ Jesus means you died with him and you were raised to new life with him. And his record is now your record. That's right. So that's what we've been singing about. And that's what Paul is saying here, right? Even, now listen to this. I know this may seem crazy, but even backslidden Christians, if they're true Christians, have no condemnation. So if you're here tonight and you're feeling like, oh man, I didn't know if I even wanted to come to RUF after spring break. Um, if you're a true Christian, listen, you should mourn over maybe how you lived. I don't know what you did. I mean, you should mourn over how you live every day, no matter what you did, whether it was spring break or not. You should mourn over the way you live today. Because even if you think you did pretty well, you didn't love the Lord your God with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength, and you didn't love your neighbors yourself. And we can't ever depend upon our record when we approach God, but there's now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And let that melt your heart and draw you back to him, right? How can this be true? It can be true because the reason there's no condemnation is because of what Jesus did. I like this hymn by Augustus Toplady. Uh, I know it's a, a funny name. He's the guy that wrote Rock of Ages. And, uh, but he also wrote this one. We've never sung this one. Maybe somebody can put it to a tune one day. Um, if thou hast my discharge procured and freely in my place endured the whole of wrath divine, payment God cannot twice demand, first at my bleeding surety's hand and then again at mine. Do you understand what that's saying? That's saying that if Jesus suffered God's wrath for your sin, God cannot ask for another payment. God cannot ask for another payment if your sins have been paid for by Jesus, if you're in Christ, okay? So that's now, therefore, no condemnation, right? Justification means Jesus died in our place and lived in our place, right? And that brings incredible security and peace. No condemnation now or ever. And I will just tell you, when we know that our condemnation has been truly removed, it melts our heart and turns us from people who hate God and despise his law to people who love him and want to serve him out of gratitude for what he's done. I think Charles Spurgeon, the great Baptist preacher, lived back in the 19th century, said it so well. He said this, when I regarded God as a tyrant, I thought my sin a trifle. But when I knew him to be my father, then I mourned that I could ever have kicked against him. When I thought God was hard, I found it easy to sin. But when I found God so kind, so good, so overflowing with compassion, I smote upon my breast to think that I could ever have rebelled against one who loved me so and who sought my good. That is so counterintuitive to the way we think, but that is the gospel, and that really is the secret to the Christian life. And that's why Paul begins this chapter, which is about wanting us to live holy lives by saying there is now therefore no condemnation. And if you go to a church that uses a different motivation, you need to question why. 
Because this is how Paul motivates people to live a holy life. Does that mean we'll no longer struggle? No, of course we're going to struggle, right? But again, Romans 7, Romans 8, both present tense, both going on all the time. And I'll just say this. I think a lot of harm has been done to Christians by the false teaching that says you go through Romans 7 and then eventually you get to the victorious mountaintop life of Romans 8 if you have enough faith or if you get baptized in the Spirit or try really hard. There's all kinds of things people... It's very easy to go to Christians and convince them that they're missing something. Now, Paul never does that. He always says, no, remember what you have. He doesn't say, oh, if only you had this, then you'd have it. And, and look, look at what it says in verse 9. Every Christian has the Spirit. Don't let anybody tell you that there are some Christians who have the Spirit, but they've not been baptized in the Spirit. That's not true. It's not true. We can sit down over coffee and I can go through that with you. Every Christian has been baptized in the Spirit. There is no second blessing that happens later. And that teaching really messes people up because they feel like their struggles will disappear if they can just get this blessing that they don't seem to have. Satan would love to convince us that we don't have enough. But there is now no condemnation. And now you have the spirit of life rather than the law of sin and death, right? So here's what you got to wrestle with. Paul says unequivocally that all Christians have the spirit. That's verse 9. And later he's going to say that they're all groaning in verse 23. That's the Christian life, right? So a couple applications and then let me jump fastly to the end. If the law was powerless to make you holy before Christ came, it's still powerless to do so. It's not that the law isn't good and holy. It's God's law after all. But it can't overcome our sinful nature. It can't change our hearts and turn us from people who are suspicious of God to people who love God. And just, again, notice this. When Paul wants to encourage us to fight against sin, he preaches a mini-sermon about what Jesus has done and how there's now no condemnation. And he calls us to have our minds set on this. That's verse 5, and I'm going to talk about that. But here's the thing, guys. I think so many Christians, and maybe some of you, try to fight against sin by preaching many sermons to yourself about how dirty you are and how faithless you are, trying to use the law and its condemnation to change your heart, and it will never be able to do that. It might make you feel bad. And if you think that being a Christian means feeling bad, I mean, sometimes it's, you know, sometimes... Literally, like, you know, people can, can literally just get beat up from preachers and then they'll walk out of the church and shake the preacher's hand and say, thank you, man, I really needed that. And they never got the gospel. They just got the crud beat out of them. But you feel good. And for some of you, that's what you understand Christianity to be, and it's awful. It doesn't change your heart. The law was powerless to change your heart before you were a Christian. It doesn't become powerful. The gospel is the only thing that changes you, right? So... Tim Keller, I, I think, uh, fleshes this out pretty well. Let me just give you this quote. He says, if we forget that there is no condemnation, we will feel far more guilt and unworthiness and pain than we should. From this may come, one, a drivenness from a need to prove ourselves. Two, a great sensitivity to criticism, defensiveness, 
Three, a lack of confidence in relationships. Four, a lack of confidence in joy and pray and worship. Five, even addictive behavior can be a reaction to a deep sense of guilt and unworthiness. And then we'll have far less motivation to live a holy life. We have fewer resources for self-control because Christians who don't understand no condemnation only obey out of fear and duty, which is never as powerful a motivation as love and gratitude. We're going to talk more about that next week, about what does it mean to kill, to mortify sin, as the old King James says. All right, last thing. We should be encouraged to fight against sin because there's now no condemnation, but also we should be encouraged to fight against sin because the Spirit of God dwells in us And as I said, his goal is to make us beautiful all the way down. We were dead and we hated God. You see what Romans 8, 7 says? That the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God. It does not submit to God's law, nor can it do so. So if you find yourself wanting to live for God in any way, even in the slightest little bit, something must have changed. Because Paul says, nobody who hasn't been changed loves God. God's law for God's sake. Oh, we might love God's law if we can use it to look down our nose at other people. That happens all the time. But we don't love it because it reveals to us the precious heart of God whom we love, right? So we need to understand what a big deal it is if we've been changed from those who hated God and could not submit to his law to those who respond to the gospel in faith and cry out for him to help us, to love him, right? We know there's no condemnation because God's spirit has set set us free, but the the no condemnation is not because the spirit dwells in us. The spirit dwelling us is proof that something has changed. We should be encouraged to fight against sin because we've been set free to struggle. And that shows us that God is at work, right? And because we see that it's Christ's purpose as well, like in verse 4. He wants to make a community of people that live for his glory. But also, one more thing. Look down at verse 11 and 12. If the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through his spirit who dwells in you in you. We are to fight against sin as those who know the outcome, which is resurrection life. We're no longer headed for death. Now look in verse 10. He says, if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin. What I think he means there, actually it's a confusing little phrase. I think what he's saying is the body is mortal and will die. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones, who's both a preacher and a physician, says it this way, the first breath you take is one of your last breaths. From the moment you begin to live, you're beginning to die. Mortality, as a result of sin entering the world, is what's true of all of us, right? We have bodies that are subject to decay. I know it's harder to believe when you're young, but it's true probably one of the reasons we don't really like hanging out with old people because it reminds us of that, right? But that is not the outcome for those who are in Christ. There will be mortal bodies raised to real life, real life, right? So how are we to fight against sin? A couple things as we close. 
Again, we're going to cover that aspect a little more next week. But there's a crucial insight in verse 5 that I want to show you. He says, For those who live according to the flesh set their minds on the things of the flesh, but those who live according to the Spirit set their minds on the things of the Spirit. So what Paul is saying is there's two ways to live, and it has everything to do with what you set your mind upon. Literally, in the Greek, it says, the spirit minds the things of the spirit, and those of the flesh mind the things of the flesh. It's stronger than just saying what you think about. It's a focused kind of meditation. It means dwelling on it until it gets into your soul. I heard Tim Keller describe meditation this way. I think it's a great way to think of it. Meditation is thinking the truth in and then thinking it out into all applications of life. That's very different, I have to tell you, than Eastern ideas of meditation, which always involve emptying your mind. Christians are transformed not by emptying their mind, but by meditating on the truth, getting it into their heart, and then thinking out the implications. Well, if there is now, therefore, no condemnation, how does that change the way I think about the way I get along with my roommates? How does that change the way I think about what my parents uh, demand of me? What does that think, change about the way I think about my future and what God might want me to do? All and on and on. Thinking the truth in, there is now, therefore now, no condemnation. What does that mean? Roll it out into every aspect of your life, right? Focus meditation. And here's the thing. What are the things that the Spirit sets our minds upon? Now, as we go through Romans 8, you're going to learn the answer to this. The thing that the Spirit is most at work to try to convince us of and focus us on is this. What it means to be and feel like a beloved adopted child of the Father who naturally cries out, Abba, even in the midst of the groaning of this life. The Spirit works to make us one who feels like a child even in the midst of our groaning. And this is a hugely important point. Listen, I've been doing ministry at Belmont 27 years. I know there are all kinds of different beliefs about the work of the Spirit. And if I asked you, if you were going to go to some book in the Bible to understand what is the work of the Holy Spirit, I'm not sure where you go. I'm not going to ask for questions. A lot of people would go to 1 Corinthians, which is the only book outside of Acts that talks about speaking in tongues, for instance. But I think it's really interesting because sometimes the way I hear people talk about the work of the Spirit in 1 Corinthians, I wonder if they've missed the main point. The only reason Paul talks about that stuff in 1 Corinthians is because the Corinthians are very immature and think that all those extraordinary manifestations make them better than other people. And so many people go, well, we don't have the Spirit like they have in Corinth. I'm like, okay, well, listen, Paul says that's a big problem. What's going on there? So why do you look there? Romans 8 is actually the most important chapter in the Bible to understand what the Spirit is focused on and what the work of the Holy Spirit is about. I know that seems radical and maybe even a little crazy. It's true. And we're going to go through that as we go through this, as we go into these other weeks. The focus of the Spirit, listen to this. The best way to understand the role of the Holy Spirit is to see what the role of the Holy Spirit was for Jesus. And do you know what the Holy Spirit did for Jesus? Assured him that he was God's son. Empowered him to follow God's will, even to the very end, when it meant death. 
That's, that's what the Spirit did for Jesus. And if you want to understand the, what the Spirit is working to do for you, that's what he's working to do for you too. To assure you that you are God's beloved child, even in the midst of the groaning, and to say, keep going. This is the way of life. Walk in it. Look at that last little verse. All who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. It's one of the most misinterpreted verses in the Bible. It is not talking about sort of almost like an internal Ouija board where you just kind of feel like God's leading me this way or that way. It's not talking about that at all. You understand the whole context is the contrast between living according to the flesh, living according to the spirit, which is talking about holiness. To be led by the spirit of God means to obey God's law. It's not about where you should go to school or where you should you know, go to grad school or who you should marry. I'm not saying that God isn't interested in that. That's not what Romans 8.14 is talking about. It's talking about the Spirit leading you into living like the beloved child of God that you are. And that's one of the ways that you know that he's at work in your life. But that's going to be um, in two weeks. We're going to talk about assurance. How do you know you're actually a Christian? Romans 8 is one of the most important passages on that. How do you fight against sin? What does it mean to be an adopted child of God? And what does it mean to be eternally secure in the love of God? All that's coming in Romans 8, so I hope you'll stick with us.